Welcome to Travels Through Time for an episode supported by Pan Macmillan. Hello, it's Artemis. Today, we're talking about one of the greatest finds in all archaeological history. This year marks the centenary of that moment in November 1922, when Howard Carter and his aristocratic sponsor, Lord Carnarvon, famously entered Tutankhamun's tomb in the Valley of the Kings. A hundred years on, we're still coming to terms with the magnitude of that find. But how did it happen? Who else was involved? And what kind of person was Howard Carter? And who was he really working with on the banks of the River Nile? These are some of the questions we're exploring in today's episode. Our guest is the internationally acclaimed Egyptologist and academic Toby Wilkinson, the author of a fascinating new book called Tutankhamun's Trumpet, the story of ancient Egypt in a hundred objects. Toby spoke to Peter about this book and that story just the other day. I'll begin by welcoming you to our podcast, Toby Wilkinson. It's a complete pleasure to be talking to you. Um, We've got a great book, great story in front of us. But I thought I'd start with a question that I guess you've been asked a bunch of times already, which is a very basic question for an Egyptologist, which is, could you tell me where this fascination with ancient Egypt comes from? Was there a genesis moment for you when you were quite young, or is it not as simple as that? Uh, no, there absolutely was a genesis moment for me, and it came on my fifth birthday. Um, and my mum and dad gave me a children's encyclopedia for my fifth birthday. And I remember leafing through this book and one of the pages was on different writing systems from from the world. So Arabic writing and Indian writing and and Roman writing and hieroglyphics. And my little sort of five-year-old mind just fixated on these these pictures that spelt out words. And um, fortunately, of course, I have a a very short first name, Toby, just four letters long. So I worked out on my fifth birthday how to write Toby in in hieroglyphics. Um, And I was so excited by this and I just wanted to be able to do this properly one day, to be able to read ancient Egyptian inscriptions on the walls of temples and tombs and, and uncover that kind of lost civilization. So from that moment on, I was hooked. It's a really interesting idea, isn't it? I suppose it's a nice picture of you as a five-year-old, like looking at something which to, to a five-year-old is going to be familiar in a way. It's, it seems like a picture to our Western uneducated eye, but then it kind of conceals multitudes and stories that hang behind that. So in a way that kind of speaks to the wider story. But from that, let's kind of move forward into something which I I know that you've spoken about before and you've written about as well, which is because Egyptology is a kind of broad and billowing story. You can go into all sorts of different areas of history, so many different personalities. Um, but you've identified the hundred years between 1822 when hieroglyphics was decoded and something that happened in 1922 that we'll get on to in in short order as really the golden age of Egyptology. And I wanted to ask you, why? 
it was a combination of factors really which came together in the uh, in, in the nineteenth century. Um, it, it really kicks off actually a little bit before eighteen twenty two when Napoleon Bonaparte um, sends an expedition, leads an expedition to Egypt in seventeen ninety eight, and he has two objectives. Um, one is to uh, capture Egypt militarily and to deny it to the British um, as a stepping stone towards India. But the second objective is a, is a cultural objective, which is to claim ancient Egypt for the new France. And Napoleon is very conscious of his imperial forebears as he sees them, both Alexander the Great, who he, who he models himself on, but also the Roman emperors. And in both cases, of course, they signaled their their achievement by uh, claiming the great civilization of the pharaohs. And so Napoleon speaks quite openly about if if the new France is to be the new Rome, it must also bring back obelisks and statues from Egypt to signal that it is now the kind of leading civilization of the age. Um, And really from that moment on, Western powers, in order to assert their own preeminence, want a bit of Egypt um, as a kind of symbol of the great, the greatest civilization of the ancient world. And so Britain and France and Prussia and later America all want to demonstrate their credentials um, by, by bringing back objects from, from the greatest civilization of, of the ancient world. So it, it's partly that scrabble for imperial um, influence um, and reputation. And it's partly the fact that the decipherment of hieroglyphics in 1822 opens up ancient Egypt so that people can start to engage with it on its own terms and read what the ancient Egyptians themselves had to to, to say about their, their lives. So I guess it's a combination of imperialism and a burgeoning scientific understanding uh, which come together. And of course, added to that, there is the whole spice and excitement of Egyptology, um, sort of swashbuckling figures in the desert, battling the elements, uncovering a, a, a civilization from such a long time ago that it seems almost miraculous. So it has all the ingredients really to make a, an extraordinary story of, of, of discovery. Yeah, it's really interesting as you were describing that. But of course, from this period that you're describing, objects start coming back from Egypt to the West, to Great Britain, to the British Museum. And um, let's for a moment talk about this wonderful new book that you've written, which is called Tutankhamun's Trumpet, the story of ancient Egypt in a hundred objects. And it's kind of, it's a book which is really grounded in this idea of material history, which is um, something which I think as historians really interests us at the moment. And we, have, of course, had the story of the world in 100 objects um, not so long ago. And your book is a kind of play on that, but in a way more focused. Is there, do, you th- do you feel like we are going through a moment for material history, our kind of, I suppose, intellectual journey at the moment? And if we are, why, why might that be? I think we are. And I think it's because objects take us into the world of the people who made them and used them in a way that perhaps text-based history um, doesn't. So to take ancient Egypt as an example, if you read the inscriptions left on temple and tomb walls, they are a very idealised portrait of a culture. They're written in order to perpetuate a a rather idealised view of life. 
Whereas if you can handle and, and, and feel an object, even something as simple as a beer jar uh, or a basket that was made by real people three, four, five thousand years ago, it immediately connects you to the lived reality of their experience. Um, because, you know, we, we are a material um, species. We, we, we create things, we make things, we use things. And it's that common thread, I think, of humanity that speaks across the eons when we, when we can, can handle the, the material remains of, of an ancient civilization. So for me, it has an immediacy of connection. And, and I think that's why it's, it's a particularly uh, a popular genre at the moment in history. One of the simplest objects from the tomb in many ways, but I think the, one of the most poignant is, is a basket of fruit. Um, and what is extraordinary about this basket of fruit is not only that it survived for 3,300 years and the fruit is perfectly preserved, but that the basket itself is identical in every respect to baskets that you will see in the markets in Egypt today holding fruit. Um, the technique and the materials have not changed in over 3,000 years. And in fact, it's even more remarkable than that because the earliest baskets known from Egypt which date back 4,000 years before Tutankhamun, are made in exactly the same style, in exactly the same materials. So there is this continuity in a craft that stretches back, what, 7,000 years before the present day, um, with generation after generation of people making these very simple but very practical containers. And that brings us you know, right down to the present day. So that thread of, of cultural practice going back such a long time, for me, is is incredibly exciting and powerful. And so in, in that case, if we, I, I suppose, put the fruit basket beside something like the, the death mask, which is almost the icon, if you want to get away with using that word, of, of the ancient Egyptian civilization, it's, it's an interesting kind of play between the two, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? It is, and, and I think this is what is remarkable about the objects from Tutankhamun's tomb and why I wanted to tell their stories, because over five and a half thousand objects were buried with, with the king. Um, of those five and a half thousand, very few are widely recognised today. The death mask is, is the obvious one. It is the iconic object. And it, it encapsulates this idea of, of monarchy, of kind of mystical royalty from an ancient time which can actually serve to distance us from the ancient Egyptians. But there are lots of other objects in the tomb, which are very everyday. Um, the king's linen loincloth, um, his toy chest, his first aid kit, his razor, um, really simple things that he would have used in daily life that we can immediately relate to. And it's that combination of the, the very esoteric and the very down to earth, which I think created an extraordinarily rounded picture of an ancient culture mm, and it's i mean there's a there's a kind of chronological neatness to this episode we're talking today because of course 1822 is the decoding of hieroglyphics 1922 is the event we're going to get on to in a moment we're now in 2022 um a good opportunity for me to ask you about um the research which is currently or still ongoing i imagine if there's five thousand objects that came out of that tomb that's a lot of work um, just to even arrange it in the first place, but to make sense of it. And I know that you've been able to engage with a lot more of the recent scholarship when you were writing the book. Um, is there anything particular going on at the moment within, 
I, I suppose, to do with techniques or understandings that we have about the objects that you'd like to just share with our listeners for the moment? I think one of the most remarkable areas of, of uh, development in archaeology um, is around forensic archaeology and particularly using modern medical techniques like um, CT scans, MRI scans, and actually some now uh, of, of the kind of genetic uh, techniques that modern medicine has, has pioneered and applying that to remains from ancient Egypt. So we're able to uncover all sorts of things about you know, Tutankhamun the boy that we never knew before. So in talking about his, his mummified body, we can now tell that he suffered from all sorts of ailments. He had a cleft palate and a club foot and a scoliosis of the spine. But we also know from genetics that he suffered repeated bouts of malaria. So actually, what we're able to discern through that sort of modern um, technology is that he was never a well boy. I mean, and, and in that sense, he was a good example of, of his time. Um, ancient Egypt was a culture in which, you know, if you made it to the age of, of 30, you were doing really well. And many, many people died in their teens, including kings like Tutankhamun. So it, it again helps to kind of strip away a lot of the, the mythology and takes us right to the heart of, of what it was like to live in, in that civilization. I'm glad you brought up the technology, actually, because I, as I was preparing for this, I thought I'd have a look at the the archives from around the time of the discovery of the tomb. And there's some great pieces in the, uh, I'm sure you're aware of them, from the Illustrated London News when they printed all of these photographs for the first time. And um, they made the announcement that he was going to be x-rayed, which seemed like such an early 20th century moment of excitement and uh, the idea that we're carrying on this tradition of scientific inquiry on the objects today is really important I know you write so much more about this in the book so I'm going to direct people in that direction if they want to find out more because today what we're going to do is what we always do on, on the podcast is, is kind of take a little journey through the past and we um, offer you the choice of going back to a calendar year to guide us through three different scenes and um, I suppose there's two ways that you can go with this story. Do you want to tell us what year you've chosen? Well, the, the year in, in question is 1922. It's 100 years ago, and it is the year of the discovery, the rediscovery of Tutankhamun's tomb. It's an extraordinary year for all sorts of reasons. It's the year of, uh, of Egypt's independence um, from the British Empire. Um, you know, it's a year of, of lots of other discoveries in the Nile Valley. But first and foremost, it is the year when... Howard Carter, uh, his excavation uncovers uh, the most remarkable archaeological discovery, really, of all time, which is the intact burial of an Egyptian pharaoh. And the, that story never loses its appeal. I think it contains such excitement, such drama, such kind of magical mystery that it, it's, in, you know, it's really compelling to, to, to take ourselves back to that moment. It, it absolutely is. I wanted to ask you, though, just about 1922, before we get into the specifics, was there a kind of bit of a fad for Egypt at that time? I, I was just looking around the year and I noticed that, for example, in, in Los Angeles, they had the opening of the Egyptian theatre in 1922. I'm not quite sure when it happened, but 
working on the logic that they couldn't have built it very quickly after the Carter's discovery. It must have been in the work. So that this idea of Hollywood embracing the ancient Egyptian culture, and you can still go to this theatre now, of course, today. I think it's owned by Netflix nowadays. Um, but was there a kind of, you know, kind of a, a still a zest for Egypt that was carrying people along in this kind of post-war society? Was it um, something people were looking to? Very much so. And and I think you know, there are a number of factors that play into this. One is that after the trauma of the First World War, I think the world, the Western world in particular, is looking for escapism. Um, and of course, that excitement of, of archaeology and, and the kind of allure of an ancient civilization does offer uh, an escapism from the harsher realities of the present day. Um, people love to imagine themselves back in, in the ancient world, which was portrayed probably rather incorrectly as a as a golden age when uh, humanity was at a you know state of innocence of course i think we know better than that today but that was part of its appeal there was also the fact that throughout the early years of the 20th century there had been a succession of discoveries including uh, in the valley of the kings which had really pushed Egypt into the uh, into the consciousness of of people and and created huge uh demand for kind of ancient Egyptian style um, fashion and, you know, objects, architecture. Uh, it became quite a, an, an element of the kind of zeitgeist of the 1920s, things in an Egyptian style. And then, of course, Hollywood, which you mentioned, which in its early days and the beginning of the sort of horror movie genre latched on to ancient Egypt um, in a way that it's never let go of. Um, the, the whole notion of mummies coming alive in the tomb and, and wreaking havoc. And it was just too appealing a subject for Hollywood to ignore. So all of these threads are present in, in the early 1920s. And then, of course, the great discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb just explodes this and, and it, it becomes a worldwide phenomenon. And we should just look from the other perspective as well outwards. And you, you mentioned really tantalisingly there that 1922 is the year of independence in Egypt. Um, what was the, I suppose, the dynamic between uh, the Egyptians and um, these archaeologists, tomb, what's the right word, tomb hunters? Um, I'll put them in that term. But were they kind of quite welcomed? Were they seen as a bit of a another imperial irritant? What was that connection? What was the dynamic? Well, 1922 in many ways is, is a watershed moment in the relationship between modern Egypt and its ancient past. And, you know, up until that point, Egyptian archaeology has been the preserve of foreigners. And it's been a question of foreigners coming into the land of Egypt and in many cases, of course, just ransacking Egypt sites um, in search of treasure. The First World War fundamentally changes the, the relationship between Egypt and, and the British imperial uh, overlords. Um, there's a big revolt in 1919 and eventually Egypt gains a, a, a degree of independence in, in early 1922. And there is undoubtedly a greater sense building through that year that Egypt wants to be the master of its of its of its future and in doing so it really has to be the masters of its own past um, and there is a growing sense that actually the old days of of westerners coming in and, and looting the country's treasures has got to stop um, and the discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb coming hot on the heels of independence absolutely feeds into that narrative and 
And it is why that discovery marks the end of the heroic age of, of, of archaeology and the beginning of what we might call a more modern scientific approach to, to uncovering the past. And, and why it also marks the end of, of a period when archaeologists have stripped Egypt for their own purposes. And of course, the, the, the great collection from the tomb of Tutankhamun, quite rightly, remains in Egypt. So it is absolutely a watershed moment in, in that relationship between Egypt and, and, and Western archaeology. Well, let's get into the specifics then. So let's let's go to a time and a place and see what's happening in 1922. Where should we go to first, please? Well, let's first go to Highclere Castle um, in the south of England, which will, of course, now be famous um, around the world as the, the setting for Downton Abbey. Um, and so that stately home, I think, will be familiar to uh, a lot of people now. Um, they'll have uh, seen the, the goings on filmed there um, for, for the series Downton Abbey. Um, and two spaces within that great stately home, I think, will, will be part of, of our first scene. Uh, the, the first is the entrance hall, this sort of double height galleried entrance hall with a big fireplace, uh, the staircase coming down from, from the upper level where visitors to Highclere are received. And then the second space is Lord Carnarvon's study, uh, the library with its, its wood panelling, its bookshelves, uh, its columns, um, where, of course, much of the action in Downton Abbey takes place, um, but has always been the principal receiving room for the Earls of Carnarvon, uh, welcoming guests to their home. So the, the setting is well known. The time is the summer of 1922. And actually what's interesting is that we can't put a precise date uh, on this episode, uh, but we know it was sometime in the early summer, probably around June. And this is an unusual visit to Highclere Castle because it takes Howard Carter, the English archaeologist, to the home of his aristocratic patron, the Earl of Carnarvon. And this was Highly unusual. Um, Lord Carnarvon wasn't in the habit of, of receiving Howard Carter or people from that sort of walk of life in his home. But the reason why Howard Carter felt compelled to visit his patron at home in the summer of 1922 was a question of money. So Lord Carnarvon had been bankrolling excavations in the Valley of the Kings for five years. And during that time, hundreds of thousands of tonnes of rubble and limestone chippings had been cleared from the floor of the valley, and very little had been found. And although Carnarvon was a keen archaeologist, you know, even his fortune was not inexhaustible. And he had decided by the summer of 1922 that enough was enough. He had, you know, spent a lot of money on supporting this excavation, really to, to support Carter's hunch that there was still an undiscovered tomb to be found in the valley. But, you know, enough was enough. And he said, no, I'm not going to put any more money this way. We, we're clearly on a hiding to nothing. Um, so I'm going to pull the plug and we're going to, to down tools. Well, Carter was a very determined man. Um, he also knew the Valley of the Kings better than anybody else alive. He knew it like the back of his hand. He had studied it over many, many years. He knew every nook and cranny. And he felt in his bones that there was still an undiscovered tomb in the bottom of the valley. He had good reason uh, to suspect that. He just felt that if, if he could persuade his patron to fund one more season, um, 
he might be able to make that breakthrough. And so very unusually, he requested an audience in person with Lord Carnarvon. He drove up to Highclere. He was received into the entrance hall and then ushered through into the Earl's uh, library. And Carter did a very unusual thing. He said, I'm willing to pay for this final season of excavation myself from my own funds if you, Lord Carnarvon, will continue to be the patron because the the permit to excavate in the valley belonged to Lord Carnarvon. Um, he was the, the patron who had been given permission by the Egyptian government. So it was vital that he continue to sponsor the excavation, even if he wasn't willing to underwrite it financially. And what happens in that study in the summer of 1922 is that the Earl is so impressed by Howard Carter's evident determination to excavate one final season that at the end of that interview, he says, well, actually, I'll continue to fund it. Um, you don't have to, to do this from your own pocket. I can see that you're a man on a mission. I can see that you really feel that there is a chance that we might find something if we just do one final season of excavation. So you know what? I will continue to fund it for, for one final season. And that is the, the kind of hinge of fate moment when um, it could so easily have gone the other way. The Earl might have said, no, really, Mr. Carter, enough is enough. We've, you know, we've given this a good try, but there's nothing to be found. Instead of which, Carter, through his powers of persuasion in this extraordinary setting of Highclere Castle, wins the chance for a final season. And upon that decision, of course, rests the, the extraordinary breakthrough that happened just a few months later. It's such a Conan Doyle-ish kind of setting, isn't it, down there on the south coast? And there's a few things that I really should ask you about at this point. Two things in particular. So we've got Lord Carnarvon and we've got Howard Carter. And I want to ask you a little bit more about them as their personalities. So let's start um, at the top, um, <laughs> hierarchically speaking at least, with the Lord. I read somewhere that he was um, convinced to get interest in Egyptology after a motor accident and he was convalescing and they said, well, what, you know, kind of what would like take your mind off it? And so he got interested in ancient Egypt. Is that his story or is that just a um, chatter? No, no, that's that's absolutely right. So uh, the Earl of Carnarvon was was passionate about speed. He loved life in the fast lane, quite literally. He was into horse racing and he was also into motoring. Um, these were the early days of the motor car. And he developed a, a taste in the early 1900s for, for driving cars at speed for the thrill of it. Now, unfortunately, he then had a motoring accident and, and that left him with permanent rheumatism um, in one of his legs. And he found that the, the climate in, in England in the winter really gave him considerable discomfort in, in, in his rheumatic leg because of the cold and the damp. And his doctors advised him to go every winter to somewhere warmer and drier. And the fashionable place to go in the early 20th century uh, was Luxor in, in the south of Egypt. So Lord Carnarvon took to spending every winter at the Winter Palace Hotel on the banks of the Nile. But, you know, he wasn't a man to stand still. And, and as he was sitting there on the veranda, looking out over the River Nile to the, the hills beyond, he felt that, you know, actually he wanted to do something, um, something exciting, something that would give him the same thrill of the chase as, uh, as being a motoring uh, uh, ace. And so he was persuaded to uh, get interested in archaeology. 
at the time, the Egyptian Antiquities Service were looking for wealthy people to sponsor excavations. And so, you know, Carnarvon was persuaded to do this. And he then knew that he, he needed to find a good archaeologist. I mean, he wasn't a trained archaeologist. He just had deep pockets. And again, one of those extraordinary moments of fate, he was introduced to Howard Carter in the winter of 1907 to 8. Uh, the two men found a, a meeting of minds, um, although they were very different characters, but Carnarvon knew a good archaeologist when he saw one, and, and Howard Carter was amongst the very best of his generation. And the two of them at that point forged a partnership um, that you know lasted for the next 15 years. This is um, a line, so let's go on to Howard Carter. That's a, It's a nice picture, actually, of the adrenaline junkie on intellectual pursuits. We could do a few more of the, with a few more of those nowadays, I think. But Mr. Howard Carter, this is from the Times later on in, uh, in 1922, I think, has for many years had suspicions, in fact, far more than suspicions, that other royal tombs remained unopened in the valley. And this opinion was shared by aged Egyptians on the west bank of the Nile, who had very good reasons for holding it. It's a good question for me to throw your way. What kind of, what was, what were these suspicions founded on? Because over the past 50, 100 years, there's been an enormous amount of work done. And I suppose we should do a bit of geography at this point, because we're kind of quite far down in the south of Egypt, aren't we? This is where Luxor and and the uh, the valley is that we're talking about. There was kind of a lot of people who just thought that it had been exhausted, that it was done. It was a finished job. Yes. Well, Howard Carter was was a self-educated man, grew up in Norfolk. Um, really, um, his his early love was, was painting, and he was quite an accomplished watercolour painter, and, and that was what first took him out to Egypt. But he developed a real talent for archaeology, and, and in particular, as I say, he knew the, the Theban hills, the Valley of the Kings, better than anybody else. And there were, there were three particular clues that he spotted that others had, had missed that led him to believe that there was one more undiscovered tomb. He had worked earlier in his career for an American um, uh, financier called Theodore Davis, who had held the, the permit for the Valley of the Kings. And Davis's excavations had uncovered a, uh, a cup uh, made of this blue glassy material called Fionn's. And it bore the name of this ephemeral king, Tutankhamun. So that had been found in the Valley of the Kings, which immediately led Carter to think that uh, a king by that name must have been buried somewhere in the valley. There were two other clues. One was uh, a cache of materials left over from um, an embalming. And again, some of that material named this King Tutankhamun. And then finally, there were some fragments of gold foil found in, in an empty pit in the valley again naming Tutankhamun. So three sets of objects from the Valley of the Kings naming a king whose tomb had not yet been discovered. But there was another really important aspect to this. For archaeologists throughout the 19th and early 20th centuries, one of the, the biggest clues about a potential new discovery was the appearance on the illicit antiquities market of a sudden rush of objects. And archaeologists like Howard Carter maintained very close connections with the antiquities dealers. And yet there was nothing on the antiquities market bearing the name of Tutankhamun. So if you put all those clues together, it means that there's almost certainly a tomb in the Valley of the Kings, but it hasn't yet been discovered because objects from it are not leaking out onto the market. And so Carter was absolutely convinced where others hadn't been, that there must still be a tomb to be discovered. 
And, you know, he was a man of very determined character. People called him irascible. I mean, he was not an easy man to get along with. He was very sure of his own opinions. He was absolutely determined that he was right and he wasn't going to take any arguments to the contrary. So here you have an adrenaline junkie um, in Lord Carnarvon. You have a very, very sure of himself archaeologist in Howard Carter. And although these two men, as I said, very different personalities, actually it was a chemistry that worked. Yeah, and apart from the dynamic of the two, last last point on this, which I think will really frame everything very well, is just a kind of geographical um, understanding of the space involved. If we're looking for an undiscovered tomb in the Valley of the Kings, does that what kind of area are we searching for? Is this real, like kind of needle in a haystack kind of stuff, or because Carter knows it so well, are we talking about something that's focused enough that within a few weeks he's going to kind of do what he wants to do? Well, he he knew the valley well enough to know that there were certain seams of rock within that valley which lent themselves to the excavation of a tomb. You can't just dig a tomb anywhere in the Valley of the Kings because you know much of the rock is too friable. And Carter really understood the geology of the valley. And he knew that all the potential sites for royal tombs really had been already explored and and exposed. But crucially, in excavating those tombs over many centuries, um, people had just thrown the spoil down into the floor of the valley. So tons and tons and tons of chippings of limestone excavated from tombs had kind of piled up in the floor of the Valley of the Kings. And Carter felt in his bones that the, the way to find an undiscovered tomb, if there still was such a tomb, was to systematically clear the rest of the valley floor of these tons of rubble. Um, because the only place left where there might be uh, a seam of rock good enough to excavate a tomb in was in the floor of the valley. So his job, in a sense, was simple. It was to clear uh, the remaining valley floor of tons of rubble, actually 200,000 tons of rubble and limestone chippings, which uh, required an army of Egyptians uh, to to do the backbreaking work. But Carter was absolutely certain that if he did this systematically, year after year after year, he would ultimately uh, reveal whether there was still a tomb left in, in the floor of the valley to be discovered. So interesting how you describe it. In, in a way, I don't know if this is a, a, a correct comparison, but it does in a way, like kind of remind me of the uh, archaeologist who was involved in the Sutton Who excavation in um, Suffolk, this kind of like dogged local who knew everything. He knew the bits and pieces, the kind of grit and grain of the the, the job. I don't know if that's fine. Anyway, let's keep going because we've got a bit more to get through. So where should we go to next? We're going to move forward through time a bit. Well, our, our next encounter with history is, is the 4th of November, 1922, in the Valley of the Kings itself. So... Just recapping a little bit, Howard Carter had persuaded his patron to fund one final season of excavation um, in the valley. And work had begun at the end of October 1922, this backbreaking work of clearing all, all the rubble. And then we come to the morning of the 4th of November. And I just want to read you a little extract from Carter's excavation journal for that day. He writes, hardly had I arrived on the work next morning, November the 4th, than the unusual silence due to the stoppage of the work made me realise that something out of the ordinary had happened. 
and I was greeted by the announcement that a step cut in the rock had been discovered. Now that short extract from Carter's journal tells us quite a lot, including things that really we haven't focused on until very recently. The first thing that it tells us is that it was Carter's habit to arrive at the excavation site after work had already started. Essentially, the Egyptian workers would start work as soon as the sun rose, clearing the, the rubble under the, uh, the, the guidance, under the oversight of a, of a trusted foreman of works. Whereas Howard Carter probably had a leisurely English breakfast and a cup of tea at his dig house before he then trundled along to the Valley of the Kings mid-morning to, to see what had happened. So by the time he arrives at the site on the 4th of November, work has already begun that morning. And indeed, work has come to a, a grinding halt because of the discovery of a step. So the other thing that that reveals, which I think is so important, particularly as we now are interested in, in telling the stories of, of the unsung heroes of archaeology, is that that first step wasn't discovered by Howard Carter. It was discovered by his Egyptian workers. And in fact, we can identify the person responsible for that first step. One of the reasons why the discovery made headlines around the world and became such a sensation was because of the extraordinary photographs taken of the, of the dig and the objects by Harry Burton. Harry Burton was the staff photographer of the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, and the museum had lent him to the Carter Carnarvon excavation. He was probably the best photographer uh, of his generation. He took large format photographs with dramatic lighting, and they really did you know, sum up the excitement of the dig. One of the most extraordinary Harry Burton photographs is of a young Egyptian boy wearing a plain white linen galabea and headscarf and wearing around his neck one of the most extraordinary items of jewellery from Tutankhamun's tomb, which is this great necklace um, with lapis lazuli scarab beetles uh, and you know, a rich kind of encrusted decoration. And the question has always been, well, why was such an important object from the tomb given to a young Egyptian boy to model? And the answer we know now is that that young Egyptian boy, whose name was Hussein Abdel Rasul, was the boy who discovered the first step. And the story is this. Back in 1922, there was, of course, no running water anywhere near the Valley of the Kings. But the archaeological work was hot, thirsty work. So the workers needed a good supply of drinking water to keep them going through the day. And the only way to bring drinking water to the Valley of the Kings uh, was in water jars on the back of a donkey. And for that purpose, the, the dig employed a number of local boys as, as water boys. And they would go down to the River Nile with their water jars, fill them with water, bring them back on, on the back of a donkey, and then set them down in the Valley of the Kings for the workers to, to refresh themselves. Well, an Egyptian water jar, and you still see them in Egypt today, was shaped a bit like a Roman amphora. It had a pointed base. So when the water boy, in this case, Hussein Abdel Rasul, took his water jar off the donkey, in order to set it down, he first had to kind of excavate a little hole in the sand to set the jar in to stop it toppling over. And it was while doing that early in the morning on the 4th of November 1922 that he scratched away the sand and revealed this limestone step cut in the floor of the valley. And immediately work 
stopped because the workers knew that this was the beginning of something exciting. And so when Carter arrives a couple of hours later, you know, he, he discovers that this, this, this step has been revealed. And of course, the rest is history. But what is really interesting and, and I think important is now we're able to give due recognition to the person that made that crucial first step. And, and it was a young Egyptian boy, not the uh, glamorous uh, Western archaeologist that has, has gained all of the credit. So how long did it take for this story to emerge of his involvement in it? Was this, is this something that's quite new to scholarship? Or? It, it is. It, 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 it's only really come out in recent years. And, and you know, there are archaeologists uh, who uh, were privileged enough to meet Hussein Abdul Rasul as, as an old man still living on the West Bank um, and to confirm that he was the boy in the picture and to hear his story. Um, but, you know, it's only recently... I think that that archaeology has woken up to the contribution of of the indigenous people to, to many of these great breakthroughs, and I think we're we're learning to balance the sort of story of heroic Western archaeologists against the unsung contribution of of the local people, um, and so this story really has found its voice only in recent years. And you know, one of the things that I'm very keen to do as we celebrate the centenary of the discovery is to to rewrite that balance um, and and to give due credit to the Egyptians who made it all possible. And I mean, well, to me, it just seems like such a kind of broadening and a, a kind of it makes the story more interesting. Apart from any other like kind of concerns you might have, and I should ask you whether he is at all commemorated. In the Valley of the Kings today, is there any plaques or statues or, or anything that explains his involvement in that momentous moment in November 1922? Um, that, that is a really good question, and it's something um, that I think is, is long overdue. We, we need to contextualise the discoveries. Actually, the, the signage in the Valley of the Kings um, is deliberately very low-key because um, uh, the Egyptian authorities don't want to clutter the the site with with a whole series of interpretive signs but even when you buy books about the discovery it's all about Howard Carter and Lord Carnarvon and it seems to me high time um, that young Hussein but also all the Egyptian workers who carried out this backbreaking work for for years and years are given due prominence and I know it's something that archives are now starting to to emphasize much more and and you know it's very important for the Egyptians too to recognise their own part in this great discovery because after all it is it's their heritage. And this kind of leads me on to another point which you alighted on. I suppose I just want to go into this a bit more. How obvious and how quickly obvious was it that this was a moment of true significance? Was it the case that as soon as you find a step? Well, a step in itself is kind of going to lead somewhere, isn't it? It generally leads to another step. And given the location of where Tutankhamun's tomb is, I believe it's just beneath a much larger tomb, which is high on the hill. So it's kind of down in the valley a bit more. Is that correct? And um, so suggestive. Yes. I mean, one of the reasons, well, the, the main reason why the tomb of Tutankhamun lay undisturbed for all of those centuries was because a later tomb had been cut above it in the valley and all the spoil from that later tomb had literally been dumped down in the valley floor, conveniently covering up the entrance to Tutankhamun's tomb. So people had forgotten that it was there. After that first step, 
Um, work then proceeds over the next day or so to clear a descending staircase. And on the 6th of November, the end of the staircase is reached. And, and what Carter and his team find is a blocked up doorway. And the doorway is covered in plaster and seal impressions. And those impressions name this King Tutankhamun. So at that point, uh, Carter is absolutely certain that what he has discovered is the tomb. Rather alarmingly, though, there are signs that the doorway has been broken into and resealed in antiquity. So Carter doesn't know what lies beyond the doorway. He's pretty sure that there's a tomb, but whether or not there's anything in the tomb, he can't tell. So it's on the 6th of November that he cables, sends a telegram to Lord Carnarvon, who's, who's back in England, um, saying, at last have made magnificent discovery in Valley, tomb with seals intact, uh, recovered the same for your arrival. Congratulations! And and then Carnarvon uh, telegrams back and says, "I'm you know I'm going to get on the next on the next boat to Alexandria, and I'll hope to be with you later in the month." And extraordinarily, I mean, this is where Carter's professionalism kicks in. Uh, he doesn't do anything more until his patron has arrived um, in Egypt towards the end of of November, and then at that point they proceed to to clear that that blocked up doorway. And what they find is that it leads to another corridor, absolutely filled to the brim with stone chippings. And so that has to be then meticulously cleared away. Um, and then by the time they get to the end of that corridor, um, well, that's that's our third point. So let me not jump ahead. Well, just one more question then, if you'll allow me, before we get to that third culminating scene. I imagine if you were to characterise Howard Carter's emotional state throughout November of 1922. It would have been high excitement. It'd be like impatience as well. But I wanted to ask you a little bit about the security of the area because this is a kind of in, there's this interesting idea of tomb raiders and the security of objects, and he probably felt a responsibility, and also he wanted to be in there. Was it kind of news that just ripped around everywhere that there's been something really big found in, in the Valley of the Kings? Or was it kind of pretty much a secret between him, Carnarvon, and the workers who were engaged in that like kind of excavation at the time? Well, it was kept fairly quiet until the tomb itself was opened. I think mainly because up until that point, you know, all that had been discovered was a, a flight of stone steps and a corridor. And the thing that immediately generates a buzz in Egypt is when anything of material value is, is discovered. Um, as soon as you find a, an object of, of value, particularly gold, of course, and jewellery, um, you know, the, the rumour mill then just start, goes into overdrive and immediately attracts attention. But up until that point, up until the end of November, you know, it was a series of stone steps and a, uh, and a corridor filled with, with chippings. And, and that probably wasn't great news. So until that point, you know, there'd been very little attention on the tomb. All that, however, is about to change. <laughs> Our partners, Ace Cultural Tours, may have just the holiday for you. Ace has over 60 years of experience in group cultural travel, and they offer a wide selection of historical and archaeological itineraries. Their schedule for 2022 and 2023 features tours covering the span of the Roman Empire across all points of the compass, from Algeria to Albania, Anglesey to Anatolia. ACE's tour to the heart of Rome will focus on the imperial period and includes a visit to the fascinating city of Ostia Antica, once the bustling port of Rome. Closer to home, 
A summer trip to the magnificent remains of Hadrian's Wall will take in sites including Vindolanda, where the famous writing tablets were uncovered. What better way to delve into the past than to follow in the footsteps of those who came before us? Find out more about Travelling Through Time with ACE via their website at www.aceculturaltours.co.uk All right, let's go, let's go to it. Um, Your third scene will be, I'm guessing, the 26th of November. At four o'clock in the afternoon. So by four o'clock in the afternoon on the 26th of November, that corridor filled with chippings has been cleared. And what do uh, the archaeologists find but another blocked up doorway at the end of this corridor? And Howard Carter is stood there um, with three companions, Lord Carnarvon, Carnarvon's daughter, Lady Evelyn Herbert. So they both recently arrived from England. And then an English engineer friend called Arthur Callender. And they stand there and they look at this second blocked up doorway. Again, there are signs of uh, entry in, in ancient times, but the door has been resealed. And again, the door is covered with seal impressions of the ancient Egyptian royal necropolis. So this really confirms this is not just any tomb, it's a, a royal tomb. And with his three companions standing by, Howard Carter takes his archaeologist trowel and he makes a small hole in the blocking doorway. And then he does what all archaeologists are trained to do when they discover a new tomb. He lights a candle and holds the candle through the hole to test for noxious gases. And then when the coast is clear, Howard Carter presses his face up against the hole in the door and he peers through into the gloom beyond. And again, let me just read a little extract from from Carter's uh, account of, of what happens next. He writes, at first I could see nothing, the hot air escaping from the chamber, causing the candle flame to flicker. But presently, as my eyes grew accustomed to the light, details of the room within emerged slowly from the mist. Strange animals, statues and gold everywhere, the glint of gold. For the moment, an eternity it must have seemed to the others standing by, I was struck dumb with amazement. And when Lord Carnarvon, unable to stand the suspense any longer, inquired anxiously, can you see anything? It was all I could do to get out the words, yes, wonderful things. And, you know, that that description has become legendary. That moment of, of high drama where Carter is peering into the void and sees in the light of his candle objects that have not seen the light of day for, for 3,200 years. Golden statues, beds and chariots and, and jewellery boxes and, and just an extraordinary array uh, of, of objects. Uh, you know, a king's ransom in, in, in every sense of the term. And this is the moment, and, and Carter later describes the 26th of November 1922 as the day of days. I mean, it is absolutely the crowning moment of his entire life, as of his entire career as an archaeologist. They have succeeded in finding what so many others have, have laboured in vain for, but none has, has succeeded until this point, which is an undiscovered tomb in the Valley of the Kings. And there's a report, I think, I think Carnarvon also writes for the Times, an article which I was reading, which amplifies or probably like kind of reflects a very similar story. But I was reading this last night, just thinking about it. And 
it really does it kind of strikes you in such a way the the, the picture of them kind of with their eyes accustoming to the dark and this kind of golden kind of hue coming back to them and so you know these these objects slowly becoming distinct it really is a magical moment and then of course the story breaks and it is an absolutely enormous story do you want to just tell us a little bit about the reception of this story because it goes as a breaking news story i mean in a way that it that it couldn't have done 50 years before for example because of the telegraphed and the technological apparatus we have absolutely it, it, is, it is the first sort of global news story in the history of archaeology it, it, it is beamed around the world and um, by by telegraph and 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 almost immediately uh, media organizations just descend upon the valley of the kings and it's one of the things that irritates carter most I and mean, he's a very irritable man at uh, the best of times but the fact that he's having to fend off um, journalists who you know want to, to get the latest information on the discovery um, he finds very trying and 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 the other aspect of of the dig that turns into it turns into a media sensation is that Lord Carnarvon as as patron of the excavation decides to sign an exclusive deal with the Times of London to to cover the very latest uh, from the excavation site well, this doesn't go down terribly well with Egyptian authorities because he's done it without any consultation at all. It also doesn't go down well with the other media organisations who feel shut out of this biggest story of, of the decade. And so journalists do what journalists often do to fill copy, which is if they can't get facts, they make them up. And irritated journalists from other news outlets who don't have the access that The Times has negotiated um, decide to make up the story of the curse because it feeds into this whole Hollywood narrative of, you know, the mummy and coming alive from the tomb and people who have disturbed the tomb meeting, um, you know, disaster and, and death. And so they make up the story of the curse and, and the curse quickly becomes the new story, uh, which everybody seizes upon. And when Lord Carnarvon dies uh, the very next year, actually, of, of blood poisoning and, and when the lights go out in Cairo and when Carnarvon's dog back in Hampshire sort of howls at the moment of his death. All of this is stitched together by the, the journalists who just think this, you know, Christmas has come at once and they make a wonderful story of the curse. And it's that really which then seizes the, the popular imagination as much as the uh, the archaeological story of, of discovery itself. So it, it is the first great media frenzy, I think, of, of the modern age. Um, and it's partly fed, um, as I say, by by the protagonists themselves. Well, I, I can inform you that the story of the curse was still in currency in Staffordshire primary schools when I was growing up there. And I don't know, 60 years later, we were told we were fed all these stories about the, the curse of Tutankhamun's tomb when I didn't know anything more about it than that. It's, um, it's been a real pleasure to find out so much more today. And of course, this is only really a prelude to what you've done in your book. And it might be slightly and well, it's a nice setup, really, because we, we're kind of going to leave them at the moment of going into the tomb. But that, for you, is just a starting point for the book, isn't it? Because the, the objects that they discover, the objects that we're still coming to terms with today, are really just launch pads for your kind of investigations into what life was like in the Nile Valley back in the time of ancient Egypt. Do you want to just say a little bit about Tutankhamun's trumpet and where that idea came from, what you hope to do with the book? Yes, thank you. And and I felt that 
for a long time, the objects themselves from the tomb had really not been given the, the attention that they deserve. As I say, over five and a half thousand objects buried with the king, of which only a handful are well known outside academic circles. And those objects range from the you know, spectacular gold mask to you know a, a humble loincloth and everything in between. And as we were discussing earlier, each of those objects tells its own story, not just about Tutankhamun and his life and times, but about the whole civilization that created them. Each is a little kind of time capsule that takes us back into the world of ancient Egypt. And you know, much as the story of the discovery uh, is exciting and, and it, of course it never loses its allure, I felt that for this centenary of, of, of the discovery, it was important to let those objects tell their stories. Now, one couldn't really cover all five and a half thousand, um, but I did want to choose a hundred you know, representative objects for the hundredth anniversary and through them to enter back into the world of ancient Egypt, its geographical setting, its historical trajectory, its religion, uh, its culture, and of course its legacy, because you know ancient Egypt still has an en enduring appeal today, and 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 a legacy of you know imperialism and 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 colonialism that we're we're also just really beginning to get to grips with. So for me, the objects were the were the window into the world of ancient Egypt um, and, and everything that has uh, that has been discovered as a result of of you know that tomb coming to light. And the final object of, of the 100 is the eponymous Tutankhamun's trumpet. Um, and the point here is that we have the trumpet. It has been played in, in relatively modern times. So we know what it sounded like, but we have no notation from ancient Egypt that tells us what the music was. We don't know what occasions this trumpet would have been played on. So it's also um, a salutary lesson in, in the limitations of material archeology. span we can hold these objects in our hands, we can explore them, but they conjure up a kind of whole lost world of experience, which we really have to use our imaginations to, to fill in the gaps. And, and that is what excites me as an Egyptologist. And it's why I think this, this subject is just enduringly fascinating. There's always got to be space for imagination in history. I think that's almost the, the poetic part of it, which appeals to so many people so strongly i've got one last question before i let you come back into 2022 which is if you could take a memento tangible memento back from this story in 1922 to have with you today was there anything you'd like that you'd like as a talisman yes i was thinking about this long and hard and and actually i i came down in favor of the water jug that the young hussein abdel rasul set down in, in the sand of the Valley of the Kings on the morning of the 4th of November that revealed the step. It's a very humble object, um, uh, just a pottery amphora to contain drinking water, but it is the object that really unlocked that entire discovery. And, and wouldn't that be a wonderful memento of, of an incredible year? Well, it'd be a good one to have in the kitchen. Every time you poured some water out of it, you'd wonder where you might be going next. Toby Wilkinson, this has been absolutely enormously fun great good luck with the book it's a wonderfully produced book it's fascinating for me as someone who knows very little about ancient egypt it's a window into a world which is completely alluring thank you very much for coming on travels through time thank you very much for having me it's been a real pleasure that was peter moore talking to toby wilkinson about a story he covers in much more detail in his new book tutankhamun's trumpet 
The Story of Ancient Egypt in a Hundred Objects, which was recently issued in hardback by Picador. For much, much more as ever, please do head over to our website, tttpodcast.com, where you'll find pictures and biographies of the characters involved in this episode. You can, of course, explore the rest of our archive there too. For us today, though, that's it. Thanks so much for listening.